chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if someone, some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or other or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Um, we're only dismissing kindergarten and first grade. Is that right? I just broke some of your hearts. Sorry. Kindergarten and first grade, y'all are headed to the back. The rest of you guys are staying in here with us, and uh, we're excited about it, right? Yes. Um, I just, if you see a kids worker today, would you just hug them and thank them? It has been a mess back with people being out of town and no electricity and, you know, having to go out to stay with family and some of them staying here with no electricity and showing up this morning and getting ready here, uh, just a lot, so... The people who showed up early and served, just from the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thank you for doing what you do so that we can do this in here. Um, so if you see a kids worker or part of the cargo team, uh, they're the ones that are sweating, running around, they've been in the rain, you can tell them thank you. Um, it's Father's Day, and I want to say happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Thank you, Dave, for your great words that you said to us. Um, I have a pic, a picture, I think, of my dad. Uh, that uh, one of the last pictures, I think. Do you have that, Mike? Yeah, there we go. Uh, I had shaved my beard off. Layton's the only one that looks good in this picture, I think. Uh, uh, you know, when you try to trim your beard and you have the wrong guard and it all comes off, this is what happens. Several years ago, my dad uh, went to be with the Lord uh, several years ago now. So um, he taught me so many things. And uh, I pray that I have the same kind of impact on my kids that my dad had on me. Um, you know, you learn a lot of things growing up, and you learn some really good things from your dad. And, uh, of course, no earthly father is perfect. I read this quote this week um, that's just moved my heart by Austin Sorensen. He said, a child is not likely to find a father in God unless he finds something of God in his father. A child is not likely to find a father in God unless he finds something of God in his father. And uh, I saw a lot of things about God in my father. And for those in this room, even as Dave said, who didn't have good fathers, earthly fathers, or fathers that weren't around, what's that Matt Chandler quote, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. And it certainly does. On Father's Day, I always get a few texts from some students that I had in youth ministry years and years ago that I was a spiritual father to, and it's a great honor to even get that text, to be a spiritual father to other people. So today, we're not necessarily focusing on Father's Day. We're focusing on marriage because that's where the text has us. 
Uh, we're going to take an extra week in this passage. I mentioned it last week, but we've drifted so much from God's original instructions on what marriage should look like. Our culture is rapidly speeding away from the intent and heart and the relationship of marriage, one that God created and invented. So I thought one extra week here might help us. And I don't want today to bring shame to any that are divorced or to the single or to teenagers. I don't want you to think, well, this is not for me. Quite the opposite of this, actually. What I want to do is lift up the ideal, God's ideal in marriage, and not exhaustively or comprehensively. Peter does not give but five verses, six verses to this, seven verses, not, not much. So you can't explain all of what marriage is, but he does give us a little insight. And so we're going to look at some of that insight. If you're single in here today, my hope is that you would say that as we lift up the ideal, that this is the kind of man that I'm going to, that I'm going to look for. This is the kind of woman that I'm going to seek to be, I'm going to pursue. Hope the teenagers in here, the 14 and 15 and 16-year-olds, begin to leverage their lives now to live in this kind of direction. The teenage girls or the younger even in this room make decisions today that they would point the trajectory of their lives in this, towards, God, towards this ideal for their good and God's glory. As we dig into the passage, maybe you found it interesting as I did. I find it humorous that the women here get six verses and the men get one. I find it humorous because it's not that the, that the men, not because our need for correction is less, it's probably more. The women just get all the detail. This is what I love. The what's and the why and the how. And could you throw in an Old Testament example? Yes, Peter did that for us. And for the, for the men, we get one thing to do and then consequence if we don't do it. Like, tell me one thing or I'm going to forget it and then warn me with a blunt object so I will do it. This is what we get. Here's the setup. Look at it this way. If Jesus was in the room and if you could sit down with him and get advice directly from him, haven't you ever wanted advice directly from Jesus? Jesus, what should I do about this or this fractured relationship or this job opportunity or this with my finances? What about this difficulty we're walking through? If you could sit down with him who knows everything and everything about everything and every possible consequence or, or result from every possible thing that could ever happen, he knows everything, he's all wise, and on top of that, that he loves you perfectly. Talk about love. I mean, just not talk either. Jesus actually was willing to give his very life for yours. So he knows everything and he loves you perfectly. And you could sit down with him and you could ask him, you could get some marriage counseling from him. You could get some dating advice from him. Would you take his advice? Would you listen to it? Would you implement it? Really going to talk through two major points today. This is what's happening in this passage. Holy Spirit inspires Peter to write these things to the church. It's put in the canon of Scripture so it could be our authoritative direction. And the first point that Peter makes in this passage is that God's purpose in marriage is to reflect the gospel. Now, we could widen the scope that our purpose in life is to reflect the gospel, absolutely. That our purpose in raising our kids is to reflect the gospel. But, I mean, to center it down, 
at the very core of what it is that the purpose of marriage is to reflect the gospel, that our marriages, we've used this before, should be a gospel metaphor. When people see our marriages, they should see such a compelling way to live and forgive and to love that it points people to the gospel. Now, this is the argument that Peter's been building all the way since chapter 1. Through chapter 1, in the chapter 2, in 2 verse 9, he says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In verse 12, that you should keep your conduct honorable, that, that the Gentiles would see your good deeds and they would glorify God. In verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then in this very verse, verse 1, so that even if some wives live in such a way, submit yourself to your husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they're not believers, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. His point is this, that our actions in marriage should reflect the gospel. The Apostle Paul would take this idea to a different level in Ephesians. He says this, in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And it wasn't that Paul was saying, man, what is the best illustration that I could come up with that would, that would, that would, that would metaphor Christ and his church? It's that God invented marriage for this very purpose. This was his idea from the beginning. He created all the animals. They all had, had things. Everything was good, 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 good. And then he created Adam without his helpmates. And then he says it's not good for Adam to be alone. So this is what God does. And then he says it's very good. Tone may own. This is, this is very good as he brings Eve into the world. Our actions in marriage should reflect the gospel. Marriage is this mirror of the relationship between Christ and his church. And this entire passage kind of speaks towards that. You'll never really understand marriage, its finer points, its deeper purposes, its greater meaning, until you understand the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Marriage is like a glass, a lens that you can see dimly through what heaven is going to be like. Marriage was created for this purpose, to give us a glimpse of heaven, a foretaste of knowing and being known on a level so intimate that the rest of the world is unfamiliar with. That you know your spouse on such an intimate level, more than anyone else. This takes such great responsibility, doesn't it, husbands, doesn't it, wives? Because you can destroy your wife, you can destroy your husband with your words, sharper and deeper than anyone else because you know on such an intimate level you know things no one else knows you know them and you're known by them so this is Peter's main point here is even in marriage especially in marriage live your life in such a way that you adorn the gospel that you make the gospel compelling that a lost person should be able to see you eating dinner at Chili's and see the way that you're not scrolling on the phone the whole day and you're looking in each other's eyes and you're being kind to each other. They should be able to notice something compelling. That your neighbors that live next to you should watch how you and your spouse fight 
fairly and in an honoring way. And they should know that there's something so different about them that your marriage, even the way you conflict, adorns the gospel, makes the gospel more compelling than I will make it today. We should do this with our lives. Does your marriage, friends, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light? If you're not married, does your life, does the way you interact, does the way you handle difficulty, does the way that you forgive, does the way that you honor, the way that you trust, the way that you love, the way that you prioritize, do all of those things adorn the gospel? That we should live as this gospel metaphor, that this our marriages should be this gospel metaphor that we display the undying, unending, never stopping, never giving up kind of love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. See, great marriages are founded on the gospel. The gospel fuels forgiveness because Christ has forgiven so much at the cost to himself. It initiates forgiveness. It initiates mercy. It initiates grace. He has loved me so much in all my deficiencies and all my failures and sins. He is so patient with me, so much more than I could ever deserve. He didn't wait for me to be enough to love me. No, while I was in my own sin, he initiated the love towards me. That The gospel reminds me of his faithfulness, that he will never leave me nor forsake me. This is how we should love each other. In a marriage. So men in your marriage, are you showing the world a picture of Jesus through your commitment and selflessness and sacrifice? You're displaying to the world the kind of love that Jesus has for this bride. And ladies, are you responding to that love that your husband brings and, and respecting him and trust and kindness do you show the world how the church should respond to the love of Jesus just as you respond to the love of your husband? If it's not convicting yet, it gets more convicting. Peter does not let up. Second point, and everything will kind of be under the... I've got like 10 more points, but I'm telling you there's two points. All the rest of them are sub-points, so I can get through with this, right? Second point, marriage takes work. We've been using this theme all year. We've got the little handouts. Now, they don't come in big people sizes. So if you've got a big Fred Flintstone wrist like I got, you've got to stretch that thing out quite a bit. But they're in the back. We've been doing this thing, plant what you want to grow. You want to grow deeper, connected with the Lord? Well, you've got to spend time sowing seeds. You've got to spend time in front of the Word and obeying the Word and forgiveness and confession and worship like we just did a minute ago. You've... You spend time sowing those seeds, and you're going to see, you're going to reap a crop. You're going you're gonna to see a harvest, plant what you want to grow. This is the same thing that Peter's even saying as he gives advice to, to married couples. That, that there's a, this is the premise he starts with, that, that there's a, some things that you can do, wives, that really please the Lord, that the Scripture says that are precious in his sight. Men, that there's, there's, a, there's a way that you can lead and love your wives that God finds pleasing and precious. But it takes work. If it didn't take work, Peter would just tell us, then, you know, just, just do your best, man. No, he didn't tell us that. He actually gives us a prescription, actually things, some character qualities that we can seek after and pursue. Personally, it takes personal work and it takes together work. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, do not let your adorning be external, 
the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And I want you to get this. Peter is not dismissing adornment. But he says for the godly woman, for the godly women, for the young teenage girls in here, outward adornment is always in moderation. The emphasis is always on inward adornment. One translation says, cultivate inner beauty. Plant what you want to grow. You want to be the kind of woman who acts in such a way that she adorns the gospel, makes the gospel beautiful, points others to the gospel in the way that she works, in the way that she loves, in the way that she raises her kids, in the, in the way that she goes to school and participates on sports teams. You want to be that kind that, that adorns the gospel, that acts in such a way that in God's sight is very precious, then we have to focus on the inward adornment, to use Peter's words. Where does beauty come from? You ask that in our culture, and we've got it all backwards, because beauty is the latest fashion trends. It's the mani-pedis. It's the right hair and the right fits, and it's, it's the right shoes. You see how we've gotten this backwards a little bit, don't you? This is not a command not to adorn your outward appearance. This is not a command to not wear deodorant. Listen, deodorant will help your marriage. I promise you that, okay? You can still treat yourself and love Jesus. Parts and Rex reference there. The focus of the verse is that you would counterculturally be more focused on your heart and your soul inward adornment, making your heart happy in Jesus before you spend time doing all the outer things. Think about your routine. How much time, ladies, and some of the men in here, <laughs> I'm the one in our family that has a Ulta loyalty card, so uh, it's, I'm, I'm in this category. They've got the good hair product, you know. My hair lady went out of business, so. Think about your routine. How much time do you spend in the outward adornment? The showering and the brushing the teeth and the fixing the hair and putting the makeup on. And I mean, this last week, we haven't done very much of that. We've just been just surviving, right? I th thought that most ladies would come with hats on today, which, which would have been totally fine. How much time you... Spend putting on the right outfit and then changing and putting on another one and looking in the mirror to see, is my outward adornment what I want it to be before I leave the house? And then think how much time you spend on the inward adornment. Daily, how much time every day do you spend in prayer, and the word of God open, listening to a worship song, cultivating the soul? This is what Peter's saying. He's not dissing the outward adornment. He just said that our focus, 90% of the focus, should be on what's going on on the inside of us. 
In today's language, he would say, friends, don't be duped by the superficial. Because God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the inside. He sees what's going on in your heart. Peter reminds us that our culture has it backwards. Even believers, all the focus on outward and very little focus on inward. If you got to choose between brushing your teeth and spending time with the Father, spend time with the Father is what he's saying. Because a healthy soul is more precious in the sight of God than clean teeth. Now, I hope none of you have to make that decision. I want you to brush your teeth too. But brush your teeth while you're singing Good, Good Father or something like that, right? I think there's a way to do it. It's easier said than done, really. You know, one of the reasons that that I think a lot of us tend to drift towards the external versus the internal is because the external can be changed in a minute. You can buy a new outfit. You can go get some lashes put on. You can get your nails done. You can can go get a haircut. But the, the inward beauty takes real work. And sometimes you don't see it immediately. The two things that it takes to have real inner beauty, the right rhythms and a right mirror. A right rhythm and a right mirror. The rhythms, it takes time to slow down, to actually hear what's going on in your own hearts, to listen for the lies of the enemy. You know the way the enemy trips you up? You know his only strategy is deception. That's all he has. Now, he takes deception and blows your life up with it, but that's what he has. So we have to have time. You remember, you remember the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness with the devil himself? The devil used the very word of God to tempt Jesus into going against the will of the Father. And you, you don't think he does that with us? How many of us have been deceived? Because we didn't know the word of God as good as Satan knows the word of God. This is what he does. He tries to deceive us, and it takes time with the Father and in the Word of God and with other Christian believers to expose the patterns of foolishness in our life, the lies of the enemy that's always in our ear, to expound, to, to, to expose the numb of apathy in our hearts, to remember God's call on your life, who you are to Him. Listen, I don't know about you, but sometimes this takes me a really long time just to say, where is my heart at? The right rhythms. And it's not something you just do one morning. This is, t- takes consistency. What's it, Eugene Peterson quote? A, a, a long obedience in the same direction. This is the, the right rhythm of walking with God every day, replacing all the right things that the world seems to suck out of us. Sometimes this takes a lot of work. Sometimes you can spend an hour in the word and not many people can tell. But let me promise you this. God knows. And you are planting seeds that you are going to reap, that you are going to harvest. Again, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. If you start walking with God daily, you can look back over your life in a month or two or six. And you can tell God is doing some incredible things in your heart. You need the right rhythms and then you need the right mirror. You can't judge your spiritual growth by what the world says or doesn't say. You need some wise, close friends in your life that you invite to speak truth to you. Listen, who speaks truth to us anymore? 
We need to create a culture where we can, out of love and with grace and so gentle, but we can speak truth to one another. You've got to invite people to do that. Even your good friends aren't going to do that unless you invite them. Say, hey, Dave, do you see anything in my life where I'm forgetting the gospel? Is there anything in my life that seems out of whack a little bit? Just be honest with me. What do you see? Reflect back to me. What's it like to be on the other side of me? Reflect back to me. Is there blind spots I have that are taking me down? Proverbs 27, 6 says, The wounds from a friend can be trusted, but the enemy multiplies kisses. If you've got a good friend who has never gently wounded you so that you can look more like Christ, they're not a good friend. Or you've never given them permission to speak into your life like this. We need people to do this. Paul tells us to speak this kind of truth to one another with gentleness. These are the right kind of mirrors we need. The word of God. James says the word of God is a mirror. That when we get into it, it reads us more than we read it. Close friends, the gathering that we have. But you know when you're really known, it's in the smaller circles. You've got a couple hundred people maybe in this room and in your MC or small group, maybe you've got 10 or 15 or 20 and then maybe even there's a smaller group inside of that that's got two or three. You need two or three that you can say, would you speak truth into my life? This is important. Paul mentions this several times. He says in 1 Timothy 4 verse 8, while bodily training is of some value, it's good to go to the gym. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds the promise for the present life and the life to come. If you're going to discipline yourself to run and be active and in the gym, that's great. Even more so, you should discipline yourself to be renewed in your inner being. This is, this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. So we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. The older we get, amen. The inner self is being renewed day by day. The right rhythms and the right mirrors. Now let's look at that mirror in the word of God. He gives five quick things to the women specifically. A few words to wives. Then we're going to get on the men. A few words to wives. Verse 2. That we should be respectful, he says. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. He just talked about if you've got husbands that aren't believers, that you're going to submit to them in every way. We talked about this last week. We talked about not going against the word of God. We've, we, we dove in that. We're not going to hit all of that today. But in every way that you can, humble yourself is what Peter is saying. And be respectful. That it would be your goal, wives, that you would strive to respect your husband, to show him honor, to esteem him. Scripture talks about two kinds of wives. In Proverbs 12, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, Proverbs says, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. There's a type of woman, a type of wife who speaks life into her husband. And there's another kind that eats away at her husband's masculinity. Just little jabs. One is the crown of her husband. One causes his very bones to rot. Wives, that you would live in a respectful way. 
And you say, but what if my husband doesn't deserve respect? Look at the text. It says, even if your husbands are, are lost, you still live in a respectful way. Pure is the next, is the next word there in verse 2. Respectful and pure conduct. Some translations say chaste here, chaste conduct. Peter's reminding the wives that God's plan is that wives impact their husband, not through persuasive lectures, although we need it a lot, but through their pure, chaste conduct, their purity, that they're not always chasing a different angle. They're not always trying to dominate and nag until things are done correctly. Proverbs 25, verse 24 says, it's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman or quarrelsome woman, always challenging her husband's decisions, always jabbing him, making fun of him when he's down, little comments that you think are funny or even sarcasm actually emasculate him. Respectful and pure, gentle and quiet. Man, it's quiet in here. Goodness. I guess if you like say amen, you get in trouble. Okay, I get it. I get it. If you say amen to anything, it's not that it's not the act, you're not talking about your wife, okay? I just we'll just say that. You're not talking about your husband. Gentle and quiet. Maybe you would say that's so patriarchal. Remember, this is not an insult. These were the same qualities that Jesus used of himself when he invited those who were weak and weary to come to him because, because he is gentle. At Dane Orland book, Gentle and Lowly, man, what a book that talks about Jesus. This is the same phrase, that women should live in such a way that they're gentle and quiet. You see, it started in, in chapter 3 with likewise, which points to Jesus right before this. Remember, this was the, this is the worship song of their day that, that Peter breaks into. For you've been called, it says in verse 21, this is not on the screen in chapter 2, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. And it goes through all the things he committed, no sin, and deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled, but he didn't revile. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Even to the point that he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you once were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherds and overseers of your soul. Continued, likewise wives. Like, in the same way as Jesus was gentle and quiet, you likewise should be this very thing. This doesn't mean that you're a doormat, letting your husband just stomp all over you, but it also doesn't mean you're the squeaky wheel. This takes incredible leadership and guiding through the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 27, verse 15 says, A quarrelsome wife is like a dripping faucet. No rest or peace or joy in that home. So wives, what kind of wife are you? The kind that speaks life into her husband? You're his crown, empowering him in leadership, genuinely praying and seeking the kingdom of God as it relates to your relationship and your marriage as a gospel metaphor to the watching world? Or are you the other kind that complain nonstop? When he makes a decision, you let him know. It's I told you so all the time. This is just talking about the posture of your heart. No man can lead a woman who refuses to follow. It doesn't matter how great a leader he is. And the secret is most of us are not that great leaders. Then 
The fifth thing is humility that he mentions here. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands in verse 1. Then in verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Even as Sarah, the Old Testament example, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and not fear anything that is frightening. I love that phrase that you don't do anything, do not fear anything that is frightening. You, you remember when Abraham came home with Abram them and said, hey, Sarah, I've met the God that created us. He spoke to me. And he's going to make us a great nation. We just got to go follow him. And as a typical wife, if Sarah was anything like my wife, she would start with all the questions. Because remember, she needs to know a little bit more detail. Well, where are we going, Abe? How are we going to get there? Well, how are we going to know that we're there? What are all the questions? What about insurance? We get insurance if we go there, Abe. We've got all the other, we've got some cool. What about all these animals and all these people and all these things? And Abraham says, I know nothing. I don't know where we're going. I don't know when we're going to get there. I don't know how we're going to provide. I know nothing, but God spoke to me and said it's time to go and he's going to lead us. And, a, and Sarah followed her husband Abraham in faith. And she was greatly rewarded for it. This is the verse. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, and you were her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Do you see the humility here? Can I say one thing? To the wives, to the young teenage girls, don't go looking for a man to complete you. Only God completes you. In a marriage, you're in this thing 50-50 or 100-100, each part of the other. And you work together to mirror the gospel to the watching world. If you look for a man to complete, complete you, to fix you, his, his wiring can't handle that. Only God completes a spouse compliments. God completes a spouse compliments. Now the submitting part, real quickly. This is how God made things work. He gave a created order to things. And as you're in this thing 50-50, each part of the other, what happens when you each get one vote and the votes don't line up? This is when Peter is saying, humble yourself and defer to your husband. Husbands, if you're pulling this card all the time, that's not leadership. That's being a dictator. I think twice in 20 years that I've had to probably pull this card that Ashley and I just did not line up. And it was probably about what restaurant we were going to. It was not even a big deal. Warren Wearsby says it this way. If both partners will imitate Jesus Christ in his submission, obedience, and his desire to serve, there will be joy and triumph in the home. Amen? All right, husbands, your turn. Husbands, in the same way, meaning the same things that he just said of the wife and the same things that he just said about Jesus, he's also speaking those also apply. Likewise, husbands, in the same way, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. 
Live with your wives in an understanding way. Now listen, our time is different. Our understanding of marital relationships is different. This one sentence is the most controversial thing that Peter said in the whole book. Those reading this in the first century, would, this, this would have been the part that they're like, Peter's lost his mind. Not the emperor part, not the slaves and masters part. We, we dove into that last week. This part would have blown their minds. Because no man lived with his wife this way. This was not the general expectation. This was not the norm. Most of these people had never even seen a relationship that worked like this. would have been so countercultural. It would have been so controversial. Peter says, I want you to live your wives in an understanding way. This could be the whole sermon, right? Scripture uses this same directive of, of, of parents to their kids. Don't provoke your kids to anger. Live with them in, in an understanding way. Remember they're three or they're five. Remember they're different. They're differently made. They're differently constructed. They've got different experiences. Remember that and live with them in an understanding way. In the same way, husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. J.R. Bastard said, headship does not mean the right to rule, but a responsibility to bear. And that responsibility is to fully surrender yourself for the good of your wife, to understand her, to study her, to serve her, live in an understanding way. Husbands, what does your wife need right now? And what is she going to need a couple hours from now? And what does she need tomorrow? And those are probably all three different answers. What does she need? Where is she at? What do your kids need? Wives, one more just bit of advice. And this is a personal thing. This is not in Scripture. One of the best things that you could do for husbands is just tell us what you need. I know it ruins the whole thing. It's just so, there's just so many times that Ashley is venting and telling me something about a story and I go into fix it mode and I'm trying to fix it and, and it just does not work. And I'm trying to be a good husband and come up with good solutions to fix her problem that she's telling me about. Yeah, right? And she doesn't want to hear any bit of that. And, and so we can sometimes get like, so frustrated at each other on a date night because she's sharing her heart and I'm trying to fix it. You know the best question, husbands, you can even ask your wives and wives, you can respond. Do you want me to listen or do you want advice? Because that might just set the whole tone. Because if you want me to listen, I'm all in. Tell me all the things. This is cool. And that little thing inside my head that says fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it, I'll just slack him. I'm, nope, I'm not fixing anything. Like I know how to fix it anyway. I don't know how to fix it. Most advice that I give, I make things worse. I do. I do. That's why I'm glad Jason's here. If you need advice, go ask Jason. He's much more wisdom than me. Not about unloading things out of the attic, but everything else. <laughs> Shots fired. Sorry. I do. I make things worse. There's times that Ashley, I'll come in the living room and Ashley and Claire and Ellie are all crying and Hudson uh, is bringing them Capri Suns to ease their pain. He knows. He knows what to do. Bring them a Capri Sun. And I come in and I start fixing their problems and it makes everything worse. And I have to go sit on the front porch. And I'm like, how did I blow that up that bad? Like that's, wives, if you could just tell us, that would be helpful. Then we can start fighting again. If, this has happened so many times to me. Me and Ashley have been, not fighting, but you know, just a little tense and we're talking and we're trying to work things through. And Ashley says, Luke, I don't need a sermon. I just need you to hug me. Oh, you mean every situation doesn't need a sermon? I thought that's what every situation needed. A hug is all it takes. Sometimes that's all it takes. 
And wives, if you could just tell us this. When we get into the fight and say, Let's just stop, stop, stop. I just want you to hug me. I just want you to listen to me. How much more helpful that would be for me. Okay, back to the text. Men, this does not get you off the hook. To live with your wife in the understanding way means to study her. And let me let you in on a secret. It's a topic that you will never exhaust. Because your wife changes every day. And you change every day. That's not a knock. The woman that you share a bed with the day after you get married is a different woman than the one you married 6, 10, 12 hours before that. Because we're changing every day. We're growing. We're maturing. Things in our past are coming to the surface that we didn't even know were there. To study your wives, to know what's going on in their heart, to grow and mature, to go to counseling together. One of the greatest things you can do for your marriage is to go to counseling together. This doesn't mean your marriage is broken, although every marriage is on some level broken. No marriage in here is perfect. One of the greatest things I ever did for my marriage is go to counseling. We went to counseling when we were about to plant this church, and we sat down with Miss Lori Perring and Ashley and I there, and she goes through a couple things, and she says, well, tell me about how you fight with each other. Tell me how you conflict. And I was like, well, we've, only, we've been married 10, 10 years. We've only had conflict once. And she looked at me, and she looked at Ashley. I've told you this story before. And she said, that's because she, Ashley, is not telling you the truth. Ashley starts weeping. I start weeping. It was a blind spot. I didn't even know it. Ashley's such a peacekeeper. It was a peacekeeper in her home. She was just trying to keep the peace in our home, and she was, not, she was not letting me know what's going on in her heart. And that's not a relationship. One of the best things, couples, you can do is go to a Christian counselor. It's worth the money, I promise you. This is the way we study our wives, and we live with them in an understanding way. And next, that we, sh husbands, you should honor her in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. A godly husband, a Christ-like husband, knows how to honor his wife. That she's not the butt of the jokes. She's not the old ball and chain. She's not the old woman at home. In what world is that honoring? That is not honoring. When you make jokes with your buddies about your wife at home, not honoring. Like, oh, well, she's never going to hear that, Luke. God sees it. God says, honor her. Live in such a way that you honor her. That your buddies say, man, I don't know what's going on in their house, but, but Luke loves Ashley more than anyone I have ever met. Honor her. Giving honor to the wife. The ancient Greek language, this word is the wife, which means the feminine one in your, in your home. It suggests that a woman's feminine nature should be the prompt for the husband to respond in honor. Again, this was such a radical teaching in the world Peter lived in. In this culture, this ancient culture, a husband had absolute rights over his wife, and the wife had virtually no rights at all. 
In the Roman world, if a man caught his wife in an adulterous relationship, he could kill her on the spot, no questions asked. But if a wife caught her husband, she could do literally nothing. All the duties and obligations in marriage were put on the wife. Peter's radical teaching is, hey, listen, husbands, I know Rome doesn't expect much of you, but God expects a lot of you. The husband has God-ordained duties and obligation towards his wife. And then he uses this, and I hope this is not controversial, he uses this word weaker vessel. And some of you are saying, I'm not weak. I know you're not. I know. Generally speaking, women are more inclined to emotional sensitivity and physical vulnerability. Ten years ago, I taught on this passage in one of our marriage things. Some of you, this was kind of a phrase we used a lot. Women were like wine glasses and men like thermoses or yetis today. This is what it means, the, the weaker vessel, fragile and delicate and beautiful. Compared to the Yeti, you throw it up on the wall and it doesn't even dent it. You can drop it, it doesn't matter, still going to do its job. There's a country song out right now that a lady sings, A Heart Like a Truck. Isn't that sexy? Heart Like a Truck. Well, this is the opposite of that. You believe that, you believe you've caught into the cultural narrative. No, God's made you this way specifically as the weaker, more delicate, more beautiful, more exquisite more complicated, more refined. Does that make sense? The opposite of that song's true. Dude, you're the truck. Throw some bricks in it, take off. Women, they're more like a Ferrari. They're, they're pretty complicated. Exquisite and sensitive and exotic and just different. Men, we have like three gauges on, on the front. If we like run out of gas or the oil's low or the car blows up, that's what we got. You ever been in a Ferrari and see all the gauges? It looks more like an airplane in front of that thing. There, there are 4,300 gauges. We should treat our wives with honor as the weaker vessel. Men, the danger for us is that we would treat our marriage, our wives, like we treat our time with the boys. You know, we hang with the boys, we say whatever comes to mind, we... No focus on really anything but the game. You know how men tell each other they love each other? They make fun of each other. That's just how, that's how it works. I just, I just made fun of Jason a minute ago. And I hope he reciprocates that with like, dude, I know you love me so much. that this is I don't know how it happened. I, I don't know the science behind this. I've not read, read the brain studies. I just know that if you feel comfortable enough to make fun of me, that I'm not going to punch you in the face, like to really make fun of me, and I know you, like with genuine heart. It has never offended me. I love you more for it. Like it's, it's our language. The problem is we take that language with the boys of insulting each other and making fun of each other, and we bring it into the home with our wives, and it's not the same. It's not the same. If we aren't careful... Our marriages become functional, not really a friendship. We work more shoulder to shoulder like we do with the boys instead of face to face or even worse, back to back. Now, again, conversely, the danger sometimes for women is to speak to us like we're wine glasses. And to be honest, from a man's perspective, I don't get hints very well at all. I don't get hints from women or from men. So people ask me all the time, uh, Luke, do you think that person's upset at you? I said, I wouldn't know unless they wrote me an e- with another email. You'd write it on a sheet of paper and, and tell me face to face. 
three forms of communication that you're upset with me, then I might know that you're upset with me. If not, I am not going to take a hint. The cold shoulder thing is not going to work. Deleting my number from your phone, not going to work. I'm not going to know. You got to come and tell me. And I wish you would. If I've offended you and hurt you, I wish you'd come tell me. That's offensive. I don't, I don't pick up on, on the hints. You've got to be a little bit more direct. Live with an understanding way showing honor. I've got to close this thing. Look at the last phrase. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Heirs, sisters in Christ, daughters of the Most High King. Listen, boys, if you want to date one of my daughters, you better treat them with the most ultimate respect and honor you can possibly think of. You better come to the door if you're picking them up. You better wash that stinky car before you leave the house. You better put on deodorant. You better make the reservations. You better have her home at the right time. You let her control the radio, but you have a playlist ready just in case she's not in the mood to control the radio. Okay, you get it? If you want to date one of my daughters, this is, this is what it's going to take. And I hopefully, I ho- hopefully I'm raising my daughters to be strong enough women that they're going to be able to put off these weak men and they're going to be able to tell you what, what they need in order for you to treat them with honor. But in case that vibe's not coming off from them, I'm here to remind you. I'll be there to remind you. In the same way, this is what Peter's saying. Listen, if you're not getting the vibe from your wife that she's the weaker vessel and you should honor her and live with her understanding way, God himself is here to remind you. The one who opened up his mouth and spoke everything into existence. The one who in the Old Testament calls the the ground to open up and just swallow whole countries of people. That, That same God. He's the one saying, listen, you should treat them, live with understanding and study them. You should treat them with honor because they're your sisters. They're my daughters, God says. You better honor them. Men, your wife is not some random girl. She's the daughter of the Most High King, the one with all authority, the one that turned people into salt, the one who in the end will mount himself against all the armies of the world and not a shot will be fired. He'll speak one word and everything will disappear. That's the one. She's the daughter of the Most High King. And you should treat her that way. Co-heirs with you in the grace of life. And then that last little warning. Quick warning on top of that. You ever felt men like your prayers were hitting the ceiling? Well, they kind of were. Because you hadn't been treating his daughter well. This would have been one of the greatest threats that Peter could bring up is trying to emphasize this point. You can feel his voice raising just a little bit and him looking at you dead in the eye. You know when your fathers gave you that lesson that you're never going to forget? Those kind of special moments? This is Peter to us. This would have been the greatest threat because prayer to the Christian life is like the air we breathe. Without prayer, what do we even have? Let me end with this. You got a little card when you came in. We've gone through this before. It says teams. It's green. I've got it on the screen. This is a way, husbands and wives, this is a way that you can cultivate understanding between each other. Remember, this, this, all this that I all just said was under the second point. The marriage takes work. It does. This is the way I want you to work on marriage. Just real quickly. And you don't have to do this every day. I, I, I would encourage you to do it every day this week. If between Sunday and Sunday, every day this week, you could do some form of this. 
the T's for touch, just to remember that you're in this together. I've got some questions on the back, maybe they kept get you going. You're just with each other. You're not against each other. Even if you're mad at each other, just touch pinkies, do the ET thing, something, just something that you can remember you're in this together. Educate. This is a reminder to be friends, to share life. Our phones numb us to this. We sit on the couch and we've got 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes after the kids go to bed and we're scrolling and scrolling and we're finding out more about what happened to our fifth grade teacher's life than we are our own spouse across the couch. Put the phones down. You should have 20 minutes uninterrupted every day, whether you do this or not, with no TV and no phones. Just 20 minutes. Do whatever you want in that 20 minutes. No phones. Touch, educate, appreciate each other. When we do church planter assessments, that's what I was doing last week in Dallas, we, we make the church planters give up there, and they each have to share five adjectives, the, the man to the wife and the wife to the, to the husband. I would love for you to do this tonight. Five adjectives. Wives, what are five things that you would tell your husband? Just things that you love about him. And then husbands, five things you love about your wife. There is something about speaking that word of blessing into them. And you say, well, they already know it. It's fine. Tell them again. Tell them lots of times. I need lots of reminders. This is how you appreciate. If you didn't do anything, if you could just do the appreciate and the prayer part together every night, it would take you about 60 seconds. It would be planting seeds to a healthier marriage. Metrics. This is how am I doing? Listen, if there's never a time where you're able to speak to your spouse and saying, hey, it hurts me when you do this. It really frustrates me when you do this. I feel like I'm not seen when you do this. I feel like you're not caring for me well when you do this. If you don't have those conversations, you're not growing. We need those conversations all the time. And when you say it, say it in a gentle way, not in the middle of a fight, not when they're going to bed. You know, this is why the metric this is a good time to have it. Maybe you just do that a couple times a week, maybe once a week. There has to be space for gentle correction and then finally pray together. I've talked to a lot of men about this, and some of the men say, you know, it's so hard for me to pray with my wife. I know this, this is the most intimate, personal thing you can do, to really pray for her. But you know how my kids learn how to pray? By praying. Even when they were four and five, and I would say, hey, Ellie, why don't you pray for dinner? And she would sit there, I don't know what to say. So just thank the Lord for the things that you love. She would, Lord, I thank you for the butterflies and the rainbows, and I'm over here ready to get to dinner. But you know, that's how she learned how to pray. It's okay for you not to be an expert theologian when you pray first. It's like learning a new language. You just, it's a spiritual language. You just learn to pray. And it's okay for it to be a 10-second, just quick arrow prayer. God, I thank you for my wife. Pray she gets rest tonight. Give her wisdom tomorrow. Use that prayer. Just insert her name. It's better if you use her name. You should pray with each other more than we do. Let me end this way as Rachel comes up. Three words, submit, study, and serve. This is your takeaway right here. Submit, study, and serve. It's Father's Day. This was an example Jesus gave us at the end of chapter 2. He submitted to the Father. We know Jesus studied. He 
grew in wisdom and admonition with the Lord. Anytime you see Jesus quoting scripture, it's not because he knew it because he's the Logos and he spoke it. It's because he learned it, that he limited his divinity while on earth. He had to learn it just like all the other boys learned it. He knew it. He studied, submitted to the Father, studied the Father, and then he served the Father. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You know what that joy was? Partially it was us that he's rescuing, but partially it was just obedience to the Father. That was the joy. He said, I didn't come to be a servant, I came to serve. And because Jesus had that relationship with the Father, he had that relationship with us. There are some ways that he backed off and gave preference to his followers. There's, he studied them. Scripture says that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He knows everything that you're walking through, and he's committed to serve you. Husbands, what if you did this first with a father and then with everyone around you, that you, you submitted, you, you chose to be humble, then you studied the Father, you're in the Word, you're being formed into the image of Jesus, and then, then you served Him by using your spiritual gift. And once you do that, it's amazing how that, that plays out with every other relationship in your life, that you can submit to other people. Everyone you meet can teach you something. Every, everyone you meet is an expert on something that you probably didn't know. You can, you can prefer them, give preference to them. You can submit to everyone you meet in some ways. You can study them. You can be hyper-focused with them. You can learn what they need and don't need. And you can commit to serve them. This works great in a marriage. When the husband says he's living with his wife in an understanding way and he's, he's studying her and he's there to serve her and honor her and he's giving preference to her. What, what do you want, babe? What do you want to do, babe? And she's reciprocating that in the same way and she's honoring and respecting her husband and, and she's, she's loving him and engaged with him and, and they know each other and they're, they're, they're planting the right kind of seeds so that they can grow a fruitful, thriving marriage. Well, so I'm going to give you preference to you, babe. What do you, what do you want to do, babe? Now, sometimes a decision's got to be made. But can you, do you see this mutual submission, how beautiful it is? What if we live like this? Submitting and studying and serving, first with God, then with others. Let me pray for us. God, as we spend a few moments in silence just here this morning, it's, you know the week we've had. Some of us don't even know what day it is. The most important thing that can happen this moment, Jesus has pressed to hear from you, though. Even as Dave echoed earlier, Jesus, would you just remind us how much you love us? We just forget. Sometimes we think it's about earning your love and performing. And I know it's none of those, but sometimes we get in that trap. And Jesus, could you just remind us this morning that you just love us? And that we have what it takes and that we're enough because you're enough. Some of us have really messed up our marriage. It's, and somehow you've given us a second chance, and we're thankful for that. Lord, would you, would you help us to make our marriage now an adornment of the gospel, a compelling picture of your love for us? I know there's got to be some people in this room who don't know Jesus, Jesus, they don't know you like I know you, and I just pray that they would have the courage to take a step of faith today to move from living in darkness to living in the light. 
Lord, would you speak to us over the next few minutes as we pray, and then we're going to sing from the depths of our heart about what a great Father you are to us, the perfect Father. God, I love you. I thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So the prayer team be in the back. If you'd like to pray with someone, take as much time as you need. In a few minutes, we're going to sing. Hear from God this morning. Pray with your spouse if you want to. They're right there with you. You can go ahead and knock the S off of the list. Just knock it off. Just pray right here. Just pray a quick little prayer blessing over your spouse if they're next to you. Do what the Lord leads you to do.